Welcome to Advance Your Art. If you are interested in making money from your art, using your artistic background to your advantage when switching careers, or if you are just plain stuck, you've come to the right place. Now let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yorika Talbo. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you're interested in learning how to build a company, make money from your art, or if you're just feeling stuck about what to do next, you've come to the right place. Every week, I sit down with a creative entrepreneur to discuss the who, what, and why of their journey. If you like this episode, please remember to like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Today, I'm sitting down with Jason Azevedo, co-founder of MRCA. Jason, hello. How are you? Doing good. How's your day going? It's going well so far. It's a bit rainy here in Boston, but other than that, it's finally getting warm. Sweet. Now yeah. we're, I, I'm, I'm in uh, West Texas, so we're pretty much always warm. So. <laughs> that's, the, that's the pretty much four season constant is just warm. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. it'll be raining outside and warm. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Well, good. I guess that's uh, you know some nice nice trade offs, particularly if you enjoy the warmth. Definitely. Cool. Excellent. So I know I gave a quick little kind of blurb about your job title, but how do you describe yourself and what you do? So I, in my job, I'm a builder and maker of things. Um, whether it be MRCA as uh, as the portfolio is all American manufacturing companies and we make things in the manufacturing companies. We also build fact, uh, factories and manufacturing systems and, and myself, I, I build companies. And so we're, we're builder of things and, and builder of, of people and communities too. It's really just how do you take something and, and have it grow and, 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 and build and be able to look at what you've done as this construction project. Great. Great. So I, I do want to get into your many projects, but beforehand, I'm just curious. So um, manufacturing, what initially made you interested in manufacturing? Uh, growing up, I was that kid that had Legos constantly and you're making and creating a bunch of stuff. And I mentally had thought, oh, maybe I'll be an architect or something like that. And then uh, I actually, my father, our entire t- uh, lives, he worked a uh, graveyard at a, a manufacturing plant and he told us over and over again to never get into manufacturing and we did not listen whatsoever and we started a originally a t-shirt uh manufacturer and uh printing and what we started to learn was we we just really had an act for manufacturing processes and really enjoyed that that kind of building out the whole system and making things work as effective as you possibly can so it, it just, it kind of morphed into in an industry. And at the time we were living in Silicon Valley. Uh, so it's not, everyone else around us is going into tech or engineering of some sort. And we're like, we're going to build stuff. <laughs> we got a lot of crazy looks for it, but we, we enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. So like, <laughs> I, I always like being the one who gets the crazy looks around people. That's, um, that makes it more okay. exciting, I think. Yeah. So let's let's talk about some of your projects. So um, so instrument graphics. What? So tell me about that project and what made you want to start that? Okay, so we actually bought instrument graphics. Um, we were coming out of uh, we we 
closed one of our early companies. Mm-hmm. We decided, hey, we want to go buy a, we, we, need, we needed a button manufacturer. That's how the whole thing started, actually, was we had a, um, we were building retail displays within one of our other companies. Mm-hmm. And we constantly had problems with buttons and switches and stuff. And this, that company happened to have screen printing, which we knew very, very well and we were absolute experts in. Mm-hmm. And then it also had this really cool button technology. Okay. Um, so we bought them. They were 32 to 33 years old when we bought them. Uh, the, if you look at original blueprints for GE nuclear equipment, it actually says you must buy the parts from us. Um, so some of the part numbers have now been, we've been producing for 40 straight years. Mm-hmm. So it was one of those companies, it was kind of our first uh, our first intro into buying a legacy U.S. manufacturing company okay. um, and really understanding what that was like. Before that, we had built most of our own companies and we, we were young kids. I mean, I, I think when we bought Instrument, I was 18, maybe 19. Um, so we, it was interesting to go into a different business mm-hmm. that had amazing quality, great reputation, all that. But they were a legacy company. They weren't the kind of not face kids that we were that were just figuring everything out same same day. It's <laughs> <laughs> good to know. Okay, um, you're right. So I'm sorry. I, I I only get my information from LinkedIn. So I was reading the dates wrong. So it looks like your first company is actually Ad Advocate. Is that Advocate. correct? So technically, there was another company before that. It was okay. a, by the name of Mateo Studios. And what we did was. We, we printed t-shirts and then got into yeah. clothing and then got into every apparel decoration you could imagine. Um, okay. And then even into this, the sewing of custom apparel. Okay. Um, so that was kind of our first thing. At one point, we had about 25 employees and our average age was uh, right around 17, 18. Like it was because we were young kids ourselves. So yeah. we had to go build manufacturing processes and we were always on the cutting edge uh, within that company. Mm-hmm. It was, um, we, if there was something crazy new that everyone's telling you not to try, we were the first ones to jump in. Yeah. So we, we had to build these processes to match the fact that we had very, very young staff that none of us had really done this before. There was no like track record there. And we built up a ton of, uh, a, a ton of kind of systems that then took us into Advoke, into Mosaic, and and kind of that process. Yeah, excellent. So, okay, so let's so let's like back in that first company then. Why t-shirts and our apparel? Like, where's it? Because it, so you, you, what's interesting is so I've spoken with a few other let's say apparel industry uh, individuals. They talk about for the design side, and you are talking about the manufacturing side of it, which I think is particularly interesting. So, tell me more about that. Were you? more interested in the manufacturing of other people's apparel? Was it your own apparel yeah. line? Well, oh, always in the manufacturing of, of, other, okay. uh, of other people's apparel. Now we had people within the organization um, on, on the ownership level that, that they, the design part was incredibly important to them. Um, but it, kind of taking a step back in time of why t-shirts. Yeah. I was 15, my brother was uh, 20. It, that was what we, that, that was, the thing that was kind of cool at the time. We, we had a neighbor that printed shirts. Our, our, um, our parents, uh, my father uh, and his brothers run a soccer club mm-hmm. and they were buying a lot of shirts. So we just saw this as something that everyone was using. And it was a, we had a good way to get into the industry and then just kind of went in. And um, that was 
That was our first entrance into, oh, we're in business. And that ends up being February of 2007 that we launch. And all of a sudden you get the 2008 crash right as we had like bought equipment and like right as we were there, the whole market falls out. Yeah. So it was, it, it taught us real quick how to run a, how to run a business because you, every person on earth is telling us, oh, there's a horrible time to start a business. You guys are going to lose everything. You're good. Of course, these are all people who have never done anything in their lives. The, right. the, 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 the people who have done things in their lives, they're like, hey, anytime's a bad time to start a business. <laughs> like, just, that's just the reality. Right. So we got into this very, like, interesting market that was going in, and it influenced tons of decisions right. until this day of we learned how to fight when everything is falling apart in the world. And the cool thing was we had nothing going in and a year later, the market drops out and everyone's like, you're going to lose everything. We're like, what is everything? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the advantage of apparently uh, being young at, at, at that time. So, okay. So you're, I'm curious on how you then worked through the market dropping out because as you're describing it, it sounds like you have, your overhead is lots of equipment. And so did you, were you financing the equipment? Were you just writing it off on your accounting? How, how are you? We that? never once up until probably five or six years, five, four or five years into the company, we never once took a drop of financing. Okay. Um, we, at one point we got ourselves uh, at year, like three or four, we got ourselves in a hard way. And um, our, our mother and father came in with a, a check to just get us by and then we paid them back. But that was about as close to financing as we had we gotten. Okay. Um, we, we were, the, the market falling out was an awesome, awesome thing for us because all of the equipment is now pennies on the, uh, on the dollar because mm -hmm. everyone's going out of business. Um, so we're able to pick up a bunch of equipment. We became very, very good mechanics because we were picking up things that didn't necessarily run. And I mean, I legitimately remember like look, just staring at a machine for an entire print run one time because the second we didn't look at the machine, it would it would shut down. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we're just like, whatever voodoo we were doing, it was working. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that was important, and this is what nobody was seeing, was all of these big companies were going bankrupt. And they were shutting down. Well, they, all they had to do was lose 20% of their clients to, to be in that situation. Mm -hmm. Well, that means there's 80% of clients suddenly looking for a home. And they don't want to go to another place that they were so scared is going to flip. So we were able to go out and work with these clients that normally would have told us to pound sand. Mm -hmm. They're all available and they're looking for someone to take this work. And we'd come in and say, we're going to do the most complex, crazy stuff we possibly can. Well, everyone's telling us we're, we're nuts at that, that time for doing that because that, that's not where the good margins are. Well, what ended up happening is everyone wants to print like those cheapo giveaway shirts that were a uh, like your family reunion or the school giveaways. Well, when the money dried up, nobody was printing family reunion mm. shirts anymore. The mm -hmm. only thing that was being made was the crazy stuff. So we just said, we're going after the craziest stuff we possibly get our hands on. And it, it just, it worked out really well, the timing, but it was it, basically every decision we were making was the exact opposite of what anybody with a sane mind was, was telling us to make. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
So, <laughs> so with this, this process, where, as you're, because what it sounds like you're, you know, you're learning by doing, did you also have mentors at this time or were there books you were reading or who were you chatting so, with or, or really was like really learning by doing? All the above. Um, okay. So we, we, we had a uh, mentor. She, she actually was our ink supplier um, that came into our lives about year three mm -hmm. um, of that business. And she was absolutely instrumental in helping guide us to the next level. Um, she, she had done very well in the industry herself. She, she really knew her stuff. Um, and we were forever grateful for her for that. Um, but also a ton of time spent in forums of finding out what people are trying or doing. And then a lot of messing stuff up. Like we, <laughs> there was, we, we were trying basically, I mean, at one point we couldn't afford a machine to put um, flocking on, uh, on to garments. Mm -hmm. So we built our own. And I shocked myself with something like 10,000 volts off the end of a, an electric generator. And I was on the ground for 30 minutes and everyone's like, why would you do that? And I'm like, hey, I didn't really plan that one. <laughs> nice. I, so in your journey, you've mentioned this a couple of times and how you're, you've both built companies and then bought companies. And so I want to hear your thought process on build or buy. And so at, at what point, and it could be either like the first company you built after this initial company and the first one you bought like what what is your decision making process for build or buy what makes you want to do one versus the other so first off buying a company is expensive so <laughs> when you're starting out it's really not always the the, the option yeah okay um so th that that alone is a good reason to build uh, build but it really comes down to your personality your team and how you're going to function so we, we have switched heavily to buying companies and integrating them because there's such a market that we understand so well of uh, usually baby boomers that are exiting business, but th their company is a piece of them. Mm -hmm. So you have to understand that. And it, it, it's really hard to buy a company if you've never built one. That, that's, now, it can be done. People do it all the time. But you want, to, you want to understand that inner working and that relationship with people. When, when you buy a company, you have to remember, you need to rebuild every single relationship in that company mm -hmm. because you don't have any. And they have inside jokes that you don't know about. They have idiosyncrasy. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff you will probably never know. So you need to be able to do that and also make the people that, you're, that work with these organizations make sure they know exactly what you're there to do. Mm -hmm. Good, bad, and different. Just make sure you communicate exactly what it is. Where if you build a company, you get 100% control of the culture. Yeah. If you, you get to build that from the ground up and, and there is no like trying to mold it. So it, it, it's six of one, half a dozen of another. Um, our team is very, very good at the buy cycle and we understand the market very well. So we have pivoted largely to buying companies and then building them okay so we, we we have a goal when we buy a company to double it in the first year so there's a huge build there but we're at least buying a foundation in place yeah so you you mentioned something interesting on there and that's the the idea of culture and so clearly as a company who now is exceptional at buying companies and then building back up part of that culture 
um, implementation is, I guess, probably you probably has a system for that. So when you're buying a company, how do you think about the culture of the company you're buying and how do you make sure that the culture is not destroyed in this process? So we do the very first thing we do once we know that a, a, um, a target acquisition is within our our parameters and that we're interested. Mm-hmm. We get on a call with the owner, and ninety nine percent of the time, from that first call with the owner, I can tell you what what their what their culture is like. Okay, um, it, it really is not that difficult because especially because we buy legacy companies that sometimes have been in the, the family two, three generations, mm-hmm. that, that owner is the culture. So if you meet him and all he can talk about is how great he is and, uh, and how uh, his, he's built the best company on earth and, stuff, and never once meets his employees, mm-hmm. that is the culture of the company. If he comes in and goes, oh, so-and-so over here has been really good to us, but that's, that's his culture. Um, and then nothing beats just going to, to the company and walking mm-hmm. around. Don't let anybody know who you are. Um, of course, the ownership will know who you are. But if, if every person looks sad, their culture sucks. Yeah, I, It is simple. The people working there hate the place they work. If you – like we've got all of these things that we've developed that we've noticed over time and, and developed out where it's not, com- it's not complex to figure out the, uh, the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we have seen some that the culture was so bad that I, we were in love with the company on paper, met the owner, called each other and went, no way. I, there, I, the implementation on that company is going to take so long because there are people accepting this culture internally. Mm-hmm. And that means I've got to redo uh, the bulk of our leadership team. Um, so the, it really is simple of, as pay attention if the people are happy. <laughs> like it's, People will try to overcomplicate this stuff all the time. But if, if you walk through a plant and break time starts and every person runs, mm-hmm. you probably have a bad culture. Yeah, that's that's good to know. Um, and it's also interesting to hear that you walk away from deals with with bad culture. That's how important culture is to this. Yeah. yeah um, so the way we exit our private equity fund is through uh, through transferring 100 percent of the ownership to the employees through an ESOP. OK, so we, we're we're actually we are going to give the American factory to the American factory worker. Mm-hmm. That is that makes culture that much more important to me because. Now, when we transition this, all of this portfolio nationwide, they all have to work together. And if you've got one that is not matching the, the culture and the, the, the ethics of the rest of the organization, they can, they can damage the whole thing. Yeah. So we have, to, we have to have good culture. And, and it's not to say that a company that has okay culture, we won't look at still and then bring them to that next level. But there's some that you're just... It, it, the way that they're making their balance sheet work is by beating the daylights out of uh, out of people. That it's yeah. just not something for us. Sure. Okay. So let's let's talk now about what you're currently doing in M- MRCA. Uh, and I'd also because I know part of that business process is transferring eventually ownership over to the the workers. Can you tell me a little bit more about what MRCA is about and then how you actually implement that. 
Well, so functionally, MRCA is a private equity fund, um, but the reality is we're, we're manufacturers that have started our own companies, built them, run them, bought them, yeah. um, and we use private equity as a funding mechanism now to do this. Okay. Um, but what we specialize in is we go find good quality American manufacturing companies that the owner is ready to retire or transition out usually second, third generation ownership. They've built these really solid companies, have tons of opportunity in front of them, but the owner is close to retirement age and just doesn't want to execute on anymore Mm -hmm. and wants to make sure that that his primary focus normally is going to be that the people are taken care of. And more often than not, the name on the side of the building is their last name. Okay. And they're, and they're in smaller communities where they are the, they are a major employer for that community. So we come in with the promise to protect all of that. And also that, Hey, we are going to grow this thing like crazy. That, that, that is our, our promise. So we purchase these smaller, oftentimes regional manufacturing companies, bolt them together across a, a, an entire portfolio and have them start sharing customers, have tips, tricks, um, resources, anything they can within the portfolio so that they strengthen together. And then that con- that conglomerate of sorts, we then turn around at year about five to seven is what we're targeting right now. And we ESOP it to the employees. And we, we, make, our, we make our investors money by that market movement heavily. Um, okay. So because they're already profitable companies, anywhere from one to five million in EBITDA, they have a built-in profit center to begin with. We're usually buying them at three and a half to five times EBITDA. And when we conglomerate them, because they're all together now, that automatically triggers about a 10 to 12x uh, EBITDA okay. valuation. So it, it's mathematically, it's, it, it's really, frankly, simple mm-hmm. um, what we're doing. But really, it's about protecting that legacy and okay. getting into the communities. And what, what we try to constantly remind everybody in the organization if we can really truly help the our employees feel better, I mean, just, just manufacturing's got a bad rap for being a, an exhausting job. Mm-hmm. If they go home with more energy and they go into their community, and now instead of hey, I'm going to sit on the couch all day, maybe I'm going to go coach my son's uh, little uh, little league team, or or I'm going to go eat out at a restaurant. You you single handedly can actually change the entire community that this person integrates with. So we, we truly focus on how do you make sure that the communities are protected and that, these, that th- this industry is a, a, a source of good for everything. Sure. How do you source your deals? That is everybody's magic question with us because <laughs> we, we have a very full pipeline. Um, yeah. So most of it starts with, with my brother. Um, so he, he's, he looks through... Uh, an absolutely ridiculous amount of deals uh, a week. Anything that hits the criteria that that I've set forth, um, he will get those over to. He'll get them over to me. We'll mm-hmm. talk about what we're seeing in it. If he sees something that doesn't hit criteria, but it might, but we, for some reason he feels like it might be cool, that comes up to us. Okay. We're getting these from all of the business listing sites. We're getting it from knowing uh, knowing brokers out in the market. We're getting it from people reaching out to us because they know what we're doing. Um, they, we try to go through as many reviews of deals as possible. We do not we do not cherry pick. We will uh, we've literally looked at hundred plus in a week 
Yeah. Like it, it's, we, because these are legacy companies, they don't often, uh, oftentimes they don't hundred percent know how to market the business for sale. Sure. Um, so we, we need, we have to go in and go find them. Um, I mean, we bought um, instrument uh, graphics that we were talking about earlier. We bought them on Craigslist. I, I, I literally typed in businesses for sale on Craigslist. Yeah. And they, 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 they were found there. Wow. So like, there's what we tell everybody is we just go look everywhere, anywhere that could possibly have a business. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll walk into a business and be like, hi, are you for sale? If it's something that we want. Um, so you just, you, you, you're, the more you're sourcing team, um, the more you're sourcing, the better quality you're going to find. The problem yeah. is it is a lot of work. This mm-hmm. is not a, you don't get to look at 10 and pick one. It's <laughs> 150 and hey, we got two that might move on. Sure. <laughs> sure. So because you're so heavily in the manufacturing space, I wonder if you could talk a little bit, a little bit about your thoughts on where the future of manufacturing is going, particularly with automation and digitization. Okay. So we are in a really interesting moment in time for manufacturing, um, mm-hmm. specifically for American manufacturing. Um, first off, you have to get rid of a, a, a misnomer that people have stuck in their heads that it is not financially viable to manufacture in the U.S. I can kill that in 10 seconds. If you look at the number one Chinese contract manufacturer, Foxconn, they're mm-hmm. building a U.S. plant. So that, 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 right. that, 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 that just kills that argument. Now, 20 years ago, was that argument valid? Yes. But tech has come so far in even the last five years that what you're starting to do is you're starting to pair humans with, with the automation and the robotics. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the other misnomer that people get all the time is, oh, the, the automation is going to take the jobs. No, it's not. First off, the, the availability of automation and, and new technology is what's allowing the industry to grow in a high-wage area. It will. It increases the wages that the workers are making because now they're operating a million dollar machine instead of sitting on a welder all day. But the other thing that's important to keep in mind, and this is the reason why so much is reshoring right now, you've got a you've got a, a society now that's consuming four or five times as many products a day as they were twenty years ago, but you have the same number of workers. So if the workers cannot get out four to five times as much a day, we, it cannot keep up with the consumption rates, it, not only in the U.S., worldwide right now. So there is no option but to start overlaying tech and really get humans for what they're absolute best at, just thinking and, and the dexterity of their hands and just understanding larger scope problems, not slaving under a welder all day. That's mm-hmm. not... So once people make that transition and that mental transition, things will start getting a lot easier. The other super important thing to realize is that we're the products are getting much more complex and we need to keep on overlaying this tech, uh, modern robotics, uh, and cobots. You can learn how to program in in 10 10 minutes. I mean, it, it is so incredibly user, uh, user friendly that 
you got to just break that mentality of that a lot of people have is, oh, I need to be huge to automate, right? Mm-hmm. I can't afford it. It's like, no, no, no. This is the, this is actually the great leveler is a small manufacturer can go buy even used robotics uh, nowadays and instantly they're on par with a major manufacturer. That this is, that it's a game changer that with what's going on right now. And we try to stay as up to date on all sorts of cool new tech that's coming out um, because it, it, the prices on it are just dropping ridiculously. I mean, we were in uh, Florida the other day at a simulation lab mm-hmm. um, talking about making augmented reality uh, glasses so that when workers on the assembly lines are going through, it shows where the next part's going to go, how it bolts on, and then it does a quality control check to make sure, yep, everything ended up correct. We're good to go. Mm-hmm. All through glass, uh, through glasses that people are wearing. So the, the tech is here. And if you were on that tech five years ago, it would have cost you $5,000 a pair of goggles. Now it's like, oh, that's $200. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> so sure, I'll take two. Yeah. <laughs> Great. I'm so I'm I'm curious in your in your own life. And so, you know, you, you started a company as a teenager and have just grown it since then and gotten in other in, in other areas and then bought and sold more companies. Those times when you felt fearful for whatever reason or however, however else you define fear, what did you do to push push through the fear, push it aside, like get past that so that you could be able to, you know, do what you needed to do to get the job done. So the, there's, there's two things. I, I, I do start with, I have an amazing team. Um, and it, it is rare we're all fearful at the same time. So that, that is, and that's incredibly important. Um, you, I, I talk to a lot of people who have business partners that are their, their mirrors. Mm-hmm. So if one's scared, the other one's scared. That, that's not a partnership that, that, that that's, that, that's mirrors of each other. So I am extraordinarily fortunate that I'm surrounded by general partners that are very good at monitoring each other's emotional uh, positioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I mean, there's all you need examples. Me, I know of phone calls where they've called each other and gone, we got to try to get Jason to take a day off. And, and like, he, he just needs to go breathe, go be with the animals. Like yeah. just, so, but we monitor each other constantly. Um, so that is the first thing is the, nothing is better than being surrounded by people that understand your emotional positioning. The second one, and it, I, I took it from a friend of mine, uh, John Livesay, and he came out and he goes, okay, I have a five, five, five rule. Is it gonna matter in five minutes, five hours or, or five years? He goes, if it ain't gonna matter in five minutes, what you waste your time. Mm-hmm. Five, five days, five months, okay. What can you stop with it? Five years, well, maybe you need to pay attention to that one. So, and it's really understanding if the possibility of making a bad decision can last longer than correcting the decision. Okay. And, and I, I watch people all the time, they get the analysis paralysis stuff starts coming in. They're afraid to make their next move. And it's like, well, if you, if you make the wrong decision, how long does it, does it take for you to realize you made the wrong decision, accept you've made the wrong decision and, cha- and reverse the decision? 
-hmm. And 90% of the time, if you really look at it, you could be like, oh, as long as I'm monitoring that we're not going to screw up here, I could correct that in a day if, if I find out we're wrong. Okay, then it's not, don't be afraid of it. Just go do it. Yeah. Um, so it's really about just breaking it down into modules of, of what's scaring you um, instead of just looking at it as these daunting tasks. Sure. With, with someone who has uh, as busy as you are, how do you, like, is there, do you structure your day, your week specifically? How do you manage your schedule and time and all of that? I, I'm going to start first with, I am not the most um, organized person. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if anybody has any false belief that I'm Mr. Organized and totally on top of things, you're wrong. <laughs> so, um, but I try to make sure that my days, even if they're packed, they have gaps in them okay. um so if i finish a meeting early that's my time and it doesn't suddenly go to be to somebody else's so if, if you can get through the meetings quickly early um i'm on the road a lot um i mean i think a week or two weeks ago i drove from austin texas to dallas to little rock to um northern arkansas to memphis and then cocoa beach florida over a four-day uh period um, so, but just getting yourself used to knowing what the, what your free breaks are, mm -hmm. because people are going to take all the, your scheduled time and that's fine. But what do you do during that free break? And sometimes it's watch a stupid YouTube video and just understanding that if you can get yourself calm and, and relaxed, you get a ton more stuff done. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm famous for having really, really, really bad cartoons on in my office all the time. And everyone's like, why on earth do you watch something that stupid? As my wife says, I lose brain cells with that on. <laughs> um, but it's, I know it's a good mechanism for me to look up, get a stupid laugh mm -hmm. in like a five minute window and then pull back. Does that work for anyone else? No. So a lot of people don't like background noise going on like that. So I try to make sure I stay in this kind of happy state of, of sorts that allows me to get more done. And, and it makes long days not hurt as bad because I mean, we, I had th that trip I was telling you that we went through Arkansas and all that. We had all but one of our general partners in, an, in a suburban and we drove that whole, that whole trip of 1400 miles in three days mm -hmm. um, to go see different companies. And he, uh, there were points at which like we couldn't breathe because we we're laughing at laughing so hard and, and like a bunch of bunch of adults sitting yeah. there but we just know how to just keep that that play going and then you literally crack a bunch of jokes and then switch into okay the balance sheet on this company i'm thinking we're gonna have to do this like and everyone's like what is this balance you guys have going we're like it's what happens when you have to be in a car with people for 17 straight hours you yeah. must learn the tools by which to function Great, great. <laughs> so with, with everything that you have done so far, what would you say has been the best advice that you ever received? It, it, it sounds stupid. It sounds stupid when, I, when it was originally given to me. You can never have enough buckets. And what it relates to is the first industry we were in, uh, we're a god of the industry. We're walking through his plant with him. And he's, I mean, the, the most amazing plant we've ever seen. And he's talking to us, the, and he gets real serious. This guy wasn't serious the whole time. And he points at a pile of buckets. He goes, you never have enough buckets. My brother and I have held on to this for years 
because it took us about nine months to figure out what he meant. Mm-hmm. And what it was is in that industry, everyone cleans their buckets to save the money. And they even make bucket cleaners and this and that. And he had ran the math that it, it wasn't worth it to mm-hmm. clean the bucket. Mm-hmm. And it was a simple thing we've held on to for years of you don't try to, don't just use the, the gut reaction of, oh, this is going to save you money or this is going to work. Really do the time to understand the analysis of why does it work? And tell this day, we on a regular basis will be like, never have enough buckets. <laughs> so, but everyone else looks at us like we're crazy when we say it, but it, it, it's, it, it's been a theme through our entire career. Okay. <laughs> that's, great. that's great. I love it. Well, Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. If the listeners want to follow you online or see more about your, your companies and what you're up to, where are the best places they can go to do that? Best place um, for anything with the company. If you're interested in investing, you're, you're interested in having us look at your company, well, you just want to talk to us, mrca.net. Um, there is actually a link on there. You can schedule a direct meeting with me um, through, uh, through my calendar. Uh, we, we are very open about talking to people and what we're, and what we're doing. Um, and then if you just want good content stream that we've got going, um, our LinkedIn has I, d- at least daily new cool content that's going on in, in the industry, things that we're doing, um, and just kind of that whole world. Sure. Wonderful. And I will put both those links in the show notes so people can click right through. Awesome. Uh, Appreciate it. Wonderful. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you like this episode, please remember to give us a five-star rating, like, and share with a friend. Our theme music is written and mixed by Chicago-based composer Ryan Black of Black Bones Collaborative. To listen to the full catalog of our episodes, go to advanceyourart.com. To see what I'm working on or book a time with me or buy a copy of my book, Be Left Behind, go to yuricataldo.com. Thank you so much and have a great day.